What would you do if you knew that hard times were coming? If you knew that sometime in the next couple of years, because of your Christian faith, you might be put in prison? What if you knew that public scorn was certainly on the horizon? The reason I ask this question is because this is the way the author of Hebrews is about to encourage and prepare his people. He's going to point them back to previous persecutions that they've endured and point them forward to ones they certainly will have to manage yet again in their future. As Christians living in the West, particularly in America, it seems pretty foreign for us, I think, to imagine a genuine persecution. In fact, it is not uncommon when persecution in America kind of comes to the conversation that those who suppose it's on the horizon are kind of pointed at as paranoid and conspiratorial. And then 2020. And some of the events in the past several years have made more and more believers become more familiar with the potential of Christian persecution in our future. And so the things that have been common for Christians throughout history in a variety of different periods of time and at every continent on our planet could be much more likely to be in our future as well. The reason I say this stuff is because as the author today is going to warn and care for and try to encourage his audience, I want it for it to be something that we don't quickly go, well, that's for them, not for us. Christians throughout all generations are to be prepared for whatever might come our way, and persecution is most certainly promised. The author previously in the passage we covered in Hebrews 10 was warning his audience against apostasy. He was telling them to not leave the Christian faith. He tells us to not go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Because if we do so, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. You can't leave Jesus and think that you're still going to be fine before God someday. And he concluded that, uh, that a phrase there with this statement from Hebrews 10.31. I'll read it out loud for you. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The reason he can say that is because to approach God apart from Christ is a terrifying endeavor. But to approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ is something that we can do with confidence. He's going to bring that charge of confidence yet and again and the fact that we can do that. Approach God with confidence, even a fearful God, because through Jesus, we can have peace with him. I'm going to read our passage today, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. You're welcome to follow along with me if you have a Bible with you. If not, I'll put the slides up on the screen as we go back through and read those a verse or two at a time. My hope this morning is to try to encourage you with the same encouragement that this author was giving to the Hebrew Christians. I would like for you to walk away today with some preparation in mind for what we should be doing as believers, especially as persecution could be in our future. I'm going to read verses 32 through 39. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go back through the text, and I'll conclude with three application points I hope will be helpful for you. You can follow along with me if you have your Bibles. 
But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as always. Uh, Lord, it's perhaps easy for us to read passages that talk about persecution, uh, things that are foreign in large part to Western ears. Um, But Father, I pray that you would draw these things to our attention, that you would help for us to apply them to our lives. Lord, that if genuine, legitimate, Bible-defined persecution is in our future, that we would be prepared to meet it. So, Father, help us to receive the same encouragement as our brothers and sisters in the faith all the way back when this was first written. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings this author points back to a time period when these Hebrew Christians had experienced genuine persecution. And we know that it was a Christian persecution because he says it was after you were enlightened. That's the, that's the point of this here. Not just, you know, you're human and so you suffer sometimes, but after you were enlightened. And I do think that that's a phrase referencing our, our spiritual enlightenment. Like it says back in Hebrews 6, it's becoming a believer early in a person's Christian walk dealing with struggles and sufferings. Now, much of the context today will be about persecution, so I just want to make sure that we have in mind a similar definition. Persecution is suffering that could have been avoided if it were not for a person's faith. Suffering that could have been avoided if it had not been for a person's faith. So when you wake up and uh, you get up in the middle of the night on the way to the bathroom and you stub your toe, Ow, pain, suffering, not persecution, right? Because it's just what everybody else might experience. Uh, Likewise, here's what might not be persecution. Let's say a Christian church sends a group of missionaries on a short-term mission trip. 15 people get together, they raise support, they go over to Indonesia for two weeks to to work at a Christian orphanage while they're there. And while they're in country, uh, they go to a marketplace to buy some uh, little souvenirs for people back home. And while they're there, some people jump on them, mug them, steal their money. Was that persecution? Probably not. Probably not. But if the group was targeted by Muslim extremists, particularly because they were Christians, that would be persecution. So in other words, persecution is not merely suffering while Christian. You get that? It's important for us to acknowledge and see the distinction there. There are many people throughout history who ended up in prison or even died because they did something that their Christian faith demanded for them to do. 
but that might not necessarily by itself be persecution. You speeding on the way to Bible study and getting a ticket is not persecution. (laughs) Now, this author, I think, knows the difference and goes on to recall the genuine persecution that these Christians faced. And here's the kinds of things that he had in mind, starting in verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So he points first to the personal sufferings that these individual Hebrew Christians would have experienced. Being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. I'm going to say that I think there's two things there. Public exposure to reproach and affliction. I think that's two different things. I don't think he's just using the same words as synonyms or different words as synonyms. I think he means two different things. Public exposure to reproach is quite simply public shaming. Ridicule, mocking. This is perhaps the most fundamental form of persecution, someone being ridiculed for their faith. And even though this might not yet be physically painful, uh, public reproach, it is a form of persecution. If you as a Christian are mocked or belittled at work or in your family or neighborhood, or even you get passed over for a promotion because you're a believer, that's the basis for the reproach. Well, then that is definitionally a level of Christian persecution. Now, it's probably soft persecution. In other words, it won't secure your entry into Fox's Book of Martyrs, but it is persecution nonetheless. But the believers who are the audience, the Hebrews here, experience more than just the reproach. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and Affliction. You see that word there, affliction? That word for affliction in Greek is the same word that is translated tribulation most of the rest of the New Testament. It's the same word that's used for tribulation in Matthew 24 when Jesus was telling his followers that they would face great tribulation. It's the same word that is used in Revelation when when we hear that there will be people coming out of a great tribulation who have been martyred for their faith. In fact, that word is used 45 times in the New Testament, and almost every time it refers to physical distress. That word for affliction is a physical kind of pain. To put it simply, the reproach may be ridicule, but affliction is more than mere dirty looks and angry tweets. And of course, as we said before, these aren't just the general struggles that are common to all humanity. This isn't you getting made fun of because you have a silly haircut or you drive a funny car. This isn't you getting beat up because someone doesn't like uh, a book you're reading. This is because a person is Christian. It was due to the faith of these Hebrew Christians. And they have already experienced these things. Not only have they experienced those things for their own faith, but it goes on. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. This is what Christians do when things get rough. They show up for their brothers and sisters. They didn't allow their church family to suffer alone. This is one of the gifts of being a part of a gospel family. Not that you will avoid suffering but that you won't have to endure it alone. 
And the next verse goes on to explain what kind of participation. Uh, The word is collaboration, being a partner with those who have been treated that way. It goes on to define that even further in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. This verse tells us some were put in prison. Being put in prison is a common fate for many Christians throughout history. Uh, Today, you can go to Christian persecution websites and find Christians who are in prison today in many different countries around the world for being Christian. That's what we know that they're in prison for. They would not be in prison if it wasn't for them sharing the gospel or operating like Christians are supposed to operate. And the believers here in Hebrews partnered with those in their day who were already experiencing prison. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And these Hebrew Christians did just that. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the audience there says back to Jesus, When did we visit you in prison, Jesus? And he says, When you cared for one of these that belonged to me. The visiting of these People in prison, the caring for, the having compassion in some way on these people in prison was a compassion directed towards Christ and these people. In other words, these first early Hebrew Christians here, the first recipients of this epistle, were operating under, doing what Jesus commanded for believers to do. And second, their property was seized. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Plundering of your property. That's that's a seizure of property, a forcible confiscation. Or to give it a proper name, theft. Stuff was stolen from them. Now it doesn't say here whether that was done by mobs, individual thieves in the middle of the night, or if it was done by corporate civic entities. But we know in history, in this time, all of those things happened to the believers. Historically, this exact kind of thing has been done many times, all the way back to the first century and even up to our very day. At one degree, it can can include heavy fines for Christians who disobey the law. That could be a plundering of property. Repo man has to come and take your stuff because you have to pay heavy fines for doing what your Lord commanded. At a higher degree, it could be forcible eviction from your home. And this wasn't a difficult thing for an angry mob to convince crooked politicians to do. That's happened all throughout history. One of the reasons it's not hard is because for starters, a person's assets would become part of the public treasury. Occasionally, Those private assets could even be added to the private wealth of those local leaders. They had lots of motivation to make a Christian destitute. And additionally, it was cheaper for a society to make a person destitute than it was to put them in prison. Don't pay for their food and their lodging and soldiers to watch them. Just take all of their stuff, add that to the public coffer, and you don't have to manage anything. This has happened many, many, many times throughout history. And when a person or a family is impoverished and on the streets, they are vulnerable to all manner of mistreatment by other cruel people. This should not be surprising to us. 
Even the next chapter, chapter 11, will explicitly call out Old Testament saints who had the same exact uh, situation, who experienced destitution and mistreatment that came as a result of it. That's literally where the, the author's about to go, is to give us case studies, examples of this stuff happening to people in the Old Testament. But this should not be surprising to us as believers at all. Because the New Testament assures us that as Christians, we must expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 13 might be the first place you'll go for that clear expectation given to believers. It says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Philippians 1, 29 through 30 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul was in prison when he wrote that. You may have to face the same thing that I'm experiencing as I write my prison letter to you. It is so expected by the New Testament believers that it becomes a part of their gospel message. Furthermore, it becomes a part of the strengthening and building up. The discipleship of believers is preparation for persecution. Listen to what it says in Acts 14, verses 21 through 22. This is when Paul is making one of his missionary journeys. This is what it says about him. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's that tribulation word again. This is so different than the false prosperity gospel preached by so many charlatans in our day. To become a Christian is free, but to be a disciple of Jesus will cost you your life. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 10. Brother will deliver brother over to death and his father, his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is all over the New Testament. I want you to remember something that's very, very important regarding persecution. No one gets Christian martyr put on their tombstone. The public charge is not they suffer because they love Jesus. The charge is they suffer because they're a public nuisance, because they will not comply with what we demand. No judge stands there with a gavel and says, judged because, boom, their love for Jesus is too big. Boom, go to jail. That's not the charge. This is really important for us to see. These Hebrews and many others like them suffered because they disrupted society. They were not going along with the crowd. Early believers refused to participate in the immoral practices of pagan society. They wanted peace, but they would not do what they could not, according to the word of God. Gareth Cockerell wrote a commentary on Hebrews I found helpful in this. Listen to what he says about the appearance 
of these Christians, the, the, the supposed motivation of these Christians and what was charged against them. Listen to what he says about these believers. The Roman historian Tacitus, born in the middle of the first century, expressed the feeling of many when he called the church a deadly disease and accused Christians of hatred of the human race. That's what they thought about believers. Those hateful bigots. That disease on the world. Those, those people are a danger to society. What was the charge leveled against those early martyrs? Danger to society. Not loving, patient, gentle, obedient believer. Therefore you die. It was what you are teaching is dangerous. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul had to deal with issues as simple as dining with a pagan neighbor, just to give you an example of how this looked. And rather than tell believers that they should merely comply with pagan practices, because that would be the expectation. Well, did you not know that even, even all these meals, you just have a meal with the neighbor. And having a meal with the neighbor, you might eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And while Paul goes, listen, that idol's not even real. You can have a clear conscience and still eat that meat. You can do that. What he actually says is not, hey, just comply with the world because it's not a spiritually big deal. He says, if you feel convicted, don't you dare touch that meat. Don't you dare dine like that. And he even goes on to tell other believers, if you find this brother who shares that conviction, he doesn't have to have it. Spiritually, he could be at peace. But it would be sin for him to go against that conviction. You do not lead him into that. That's so big. He does not say, just do what the world does. It's not a big deal. He says, if that conviction's there, don't you dare. Operate under that conviction. Strengthen those muscles. Remember Hebrews 10, 29? We were there just a handful of verses ago where the author here explicitly argues. He, he challenges the, the believers. Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Meet together is a command. We talked about this. This is a big 2020 issue that Christians are saying, you don't really have to meet. Yes, you do. And the demand was to do that, not neglect meeting with one another as is the habit of some. But all the more as you see the day approaching, as things get worse, you should be more intentional meeting together. Here's what, what uh, Dennis Johnson, another a comment, commentator on uh, Hebrews said, fear of persecution may be motivating some to neglect gathering with other followers of Jesus. In other words, the fact that these pieces are all woven together, perhaps what the author has in mind is, ah, maybe that's why they didn't want to meet together because of fear of persecution. Me associating with other instigators of public disruption, maybe I should just stay away from them. And the argument is, no, meet together. Be like these people. Have compassion even on those in prison, those who are under persecution, those who are facing public reproach. You gather together with them. You don't go, no, no, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. But notice, not only would these Christians operate contrary to what the public would demand, we know historically and probably is here, but they respond to persecution differently than would be expected. And how was that? With joy. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. 
joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This, this is how Christians receive persecution. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is how Jesus suffered, and so should we. There is absolutely a time for fighting. There absolutely is. But there's also a time for a peaceful endurance of suffering. And when we suffer, we do so willingly. No whining. No complaining. No entitlement to a peaceful life in this world. Our suffering is for Christ's sake. And how is it that these people could endure such treatment with joy, joyfully? How is it that when the property was being taken and daddy gets his wife and kids together on their knees after this has all gone down, what does he pray? Lord, why have you judged us? No, the prayer is, Lord, thank you for counting us worthy to suffer for the name. How could they do this? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how. Since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and one that can't be taken. Jesus says, lay up your treasures where thieves cannot break in and steal or moth and rust cannot destroy. Set them up in heaven. Why? No one can touch that. There's a better possession and an abiding one. We are to keep our eyes fixed on heaven, on our prize. The difference between any present suffering and our future in heaven is both in duration and degree. How long it's going to be and how great it's going to be. More on this soon. We talk about letting our light shine before men, but what better way to do it than to do this? Suffer with dignity. Dignity. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 says it like this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The world will see our suffering and some will see the gospel in it. He continues, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't throw that away, for you have need of endurance. Any degree or duration of suffering in the end is worthy of our endurance, because in the end we get Jesus, and Jesus is better than life. So when we get there, not only will the duration be eternal. Oh, you remember back to those momentary afflictions? Those, oh, just like a moment. And all of this, not only was the duration different, but the weight of glory was so much greater that oh, that feels like nothing in comparison to this. But in order for us to maintain that right perspective, we need endurance. For you have need of endurance. Why? So that they won't throw away their confidence. They'll keep their eyes fixed on the great reward. That's why they need the endurance. 
Jesus said in Matthew 10, I read, read part of this already, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In that chapter, Jesus promised to give his disciples supernatural help when the worst kind of persecution comes. His explicit command was, do not be anxious about that moment. Don't sit there wondering, what am I going to say when I finally stand before the king or the governor and I, I'm standing before the judge and they, they hold the gavel up and they're deciding whether or not I get death or release? What am I going to do? Don't be anxious about that. Why? Because I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will tell you exactly what to say. If you were to read that, you'll notice he does not say, don't worry, I'll get you out. He goes, because I'll tell you exactly what to say. Right before those stones fly and crush you to death, you will say what I have planned for you to say. But what's often missed in a passage like that is that he demands that they be prepared for the moment. Don't be anxious about it. That's why he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says, beware of the men who will be coming. Be wise as serpents and cunning. That's what he tells us to do. As wise as, uh, cunning as serpents and wise as doves. He is perfectly preparing his followers for all types of persecution. I do think that you can extend that out to other believers. That, that was two disciples. But the idea of being prepared for the seasons where endurance are needed. This is why the whole New Testament doesn't go, hey, don't worry, persecution's gonna come. Don't prepare yourself at all. It'll just be managed when you get there. No, you're gonna have to deal with it every day. You're gonna have to be ready for that moment. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's gonna make the same point in just a moment. We'll look at it a little clearer there in verse 39. But he moves on. And he makes an Old Testament citation. It's actually a, a bunch of citations in one. He takes a bunch of thoughts from the Old Testament and he's going to collapse them all together and kind of give a summary about these Old Testament thoughts. He says this, Yet a little while and the coming, of one, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The starting point, yet a little while and the coming one will come with not delay. That's from Haggai 2.6 in the Old Testament prophet. And he uses these citations as a way of proving the point that God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. My righteous one shall live by faith. If you're a righteous one of God, if you've submitted your life to him, if you have focused on him, you shall live by faith. And if you shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in you. That's exactly the point that he's making here in this. And Jesus says it in this way. He says the exact same idea in this way. Jesus says it in Matthew 10, again, verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, that's the shrinking back, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whew. Weighty. Jesus is coming. And in his coming, he will not delay. And he will come to judge those who stand against him and to rescue his own. That's what he's coming for. Many believers today think that Christians will be raptured out of this world before the worst persecution comes. That is not true. It is not true that Christians get to disappear off this earth as the worst persecution comes. That will not happen. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, remember that's the pain word, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So what's two things going to happen? Judgment and punishment for those who are the enemies of God and relief and rescue for those who love the Lord Jesus. When will this happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's when it happens. At the next coming of Jesus, he will rescue those who are his and bring judgment on those who are his enemies. I hope in this next year to do a bunch more preaching through end times things. And in part because I think that a wrong expectation about what is coming may cause us to live in a way that is not most honoring to God. That's my concern. If our view is all we have to do is make it to the rapture, that is not going to prepare us to endure the things we've been told to endure. I really want to help you see this. That is a new invention in church history that we've got to put to death. And this author continues by saying this. This is a great assurance. But we, not, not just me, hey, do what you want, but here's what I'm going to do. This is not an, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, do whatever you want. This is a, but we, I know you. I've seen, I've seen your persecution. I've watched what's happening to you. We, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not of those who I just told you in the Old Testament citation will bring no pleasure to God. We are not of those, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are. Who are we? We're the ones whose souls are preserved through faith. I love these assurances in the book of Hebrews. And he includes his audience and himself in that encouragement. Our souls are preserved through an enduring faith. The gift of faith from God, the gift of perseverance, the promise of Jesus, he who began a good work in in you, will carry it out to completion. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that promise. How, How is it? How is it that he will preserve us? Through faith, not through a bunch of special deeds and works. You don't preserve yourself now by a bunch of deeds. As a believer who have your hope and confidence in Jesus, and that's the way that you can approach the Lord. Your hope now is not because I'm a believer. God, look at all the deeds. See the deeds? that's That's how I'm preserved. No. Additionally, additionally, it is not built on our stubbornness. For a long time, I kind of thought that. Like, could I endure torture? I mean, Rambo could do it. I'm a tough guy. I am, I'm a tough guy. I, I could do it, right? Our hope is not in our stubbornness. If you've ever wondered that for yourself, if you ever wondered, like, I, oh my goodness, if a gun actually was on my head could, and they told me to deny Jesus, would I? Would I? I don't know. I'm not strong enough to push back. Of course you're not strong enough. And your preservation will be in your faith not in your works. That's the point, you see? That from the beginning to the end, we're saved by grace through faith. 
how we get there. That means that in the end, your only hope, your only hope in that moment is faith in Jesus. That's your only hope. Don't be anxious about that moment, brothers and sisters. He will show up. And your faith will preserve you. I want to close with three uh, application points from today. I, I, think, I think these ones are glaring from the text. I think these are just right there, hard to avoid. I'm not going to have to make much connection points for you. First, expect persecution. Expect persecution. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says it again this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Oh, goodness. I think that passage can refer to far more than just persecution. I think it's all kinds of trials that can come for a Christian, but at the very least, it's the persecutions of Jesus. At the very least, it's us having to deal with Oppression for being a believer. And what does he say? Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by it. It's very likely that as believers in the Western world, we will have to become more familiar with suffering in the future. I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet. No one knows what tomorrow holds but the Lord. But it seems to me, and I think a growing number of Christians, that the opposition to our Christian faith is intensifying in the West. I think that it is likely that at least by the end of my generation, and if not mine, that of my children, will have to bleed. And at that point, we will no longer be exceptional. We'll be normal in Christian history. I don't think it's been a good thing for us to have gone through the last several centuries being granted social benefit for saying that we were Christians. God has used it for his glory and for our good. But I think that our time in the sun that we've enjoyed for far too long is coming to an end. I don't think you have to be a conspirator to think that way. I think you have to know history and the Bible. We should expect persecution, brothers and sisters. We should expect it. We, we, should, we, should, we should consider it a blessing when we don't get that kind and say, Lord, well then, how can I leverage my freedoms for kingdom-building efforts? For your, how can I do that? We, we, I have almost no restrictions on doing the kind of things that you command. Well, let us do that. That's how our response should be until the day comes when we're put in chains for it. Expect persecution. Expect it. And be grateful for the unique blessing when it doesn't come. That's number one. Number two, look to heaven. Set our eyes heavenward where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of our future. Remind your own mind and heart about what is coming. This is, um, this is all over the New Testament. Look forward. How do you endure difficult times? Because you know this isn't it. Because there's something else up there. That's why. That's how you're going to be able to survive this. Because there's something better. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Jesus says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my count. Rejoice and be glad. Why, Jesus? Why can we rejoice and be glad? Here's why. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All the people of God have had to endure this junk. And the day is coming we won't have to anymore. The day is coming we won't have to fear for the kind of world that our children are growing up in. Look to heaven. Look to heaven. I think people sometimes in our day try to not do that. Like, well, no, no, it's about living in the present, living in the moment. No, look forward. The moment, this moment stinks. You need the encouragement from a future in order to think rightly about today. Do you wonder what that's going to look like? Are you going to be ashamed of the way that you dealt with trials and tribulations in this, in this age when you look back someday? I, I actually do think that we'll be able to remember back to our life. I think we'll be able to remember our sin and our suffering and our struggles. I think we'll have to remember it. I think we have to because if for an eternity, I have no reason to remember that Jesus saved me from those sins. I don't think I'll be able to praise him as, as fully and gloriously. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But I imagine I can look back and see and remember and think about, oh, I did that and he saved me anyway? Oh, Jesus, I think that we're going to see all of those activities and actions of life with such a perfect clarity that it will really give him the worship he is due for all eternity. And I don't want to look back on those moments and go, how oh, foolish. I wasn't willing to endure just, just, a, just a little bit of scorn. Just, just potential scorn. Hey, the, the Bible sitting out on work, at, at work and some people were coming and I just, I just kind of stuck it in my desk. Just, just little things like that. You might look back on it and go, oh, so ashamed. What was I worried about? What's the, somebody just thinking poorly of me or mocking me? We don't want to look back to little or significant things with remorse at that moment. Look back and say, Lord, thank you for the grace in that moment to live as though heaven was waiting. First was expect persecution. Second was look to heaven. And third, prepare yourself to endure suffering. Prepare yourself to endure suffering. I think that's what all these keep pointing to. You need endurance. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Perseverance is constantly challenged. It's constantly commanded of believers. Why? Why? Because the expectation is that we're going to need to be prepared for what's coming. And you can either do that and be ready or not. And it's going to hurt. Don't give up on things. Do hard things. As believers, we need to train ourselves and our children to be tough people. Tough people. Persevering people. Oh my goodness, I, toughness is such an important virtue. <laughs> a, a masculine toughness and a feminine toughness. The kind that's prepared and ready for suffering and able to endure. Lots of stuff in the future uh, we're going to be preaching through that I think will be helpful for you all coming straight out of the word here. But doing this will be of service to you and to the kingdom, to your families for generations to come. Even if somehow you get the unique blessing of never experiencing that kind of persecution in your life. Listen to what it says in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Romans 5, 3 through 4 says the same thing. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. See how that works? Your current experiences that demand endurance are strengthening you for greater ones you may have to face in the future. Have you ever thought that it is possible that if you were to fail that test in something small, God might not give you the blessing of suffering greatly for him in the future? Have you thought of that? What would you do if you knew that you were going to war, war, physical war, sometime in the next five years. You don't know when, but you know it is absolutely certain. Maybe an invasion. You, you are going to go to war. It is, it is certain for you. It's coming. What would you do if you knew for certain it was coming? Here's what I'm guessing you would do. This is what I'd do. Start eating better. Exercise more to get in shape. Get one of those apps to track progress, fitness, right? Uh, all of a sudden, those excuses for how much I hate running are just not going to have much sway. Learn how to fight, strategize, spend more time with people who've been to war, learn about their experiences. You'd finally give up on that time-wasting habit that is utterly useless. How about kids? You'd spend deeply quality time with your kids. You'd likely pull them out of school and keep them home so you could spend every possible minute with them, discipling them and preparing them for the same battle before you get drawn into it or worse. For a person to not do all these things when physical war is coming would make that person a fool. Stuff in your face with Twinkies. I don't know, it'll come. You're gonna die. Prepared people die in war. How much more those who resist any preparation at all. Do you not see that this is how you and I should be living your life as a believer right now? The biggest difference between that odd scenario and your reality as a believer is that that scenario is merely potential and it's in the future. But if you're a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, then the war is not potential, it is realized. It is not future, it is now. The battle for your soul is here. The battle for your kids' and grandkids' souls is here. And it is very possible that either in your lifetime or in theirs, Christians will once again have to die for their faith. I feel as a pastor, one of my duties, one of my responsibilities is to prepare a people for prison. Now, you may be a stone-cold skeptic. You may, you may think all oh, this is too paranoid and stuff like that. Maybe. You may just be totally ignorant of what's written in the Bible and on the pages of history. You may believe that neither you nor any other Christian that you know will ever experience genuine tribulation for being a Christian. I have two things to say to you. First, it's commanded to be prepared. So get over your skepticism and obey your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Second, Brother, sister, what loss is there for you if you prepare your life for that battle and for some reason it doesn't come? Seriously. Okay, I've memorized books of the Bible in case they ever go to prison. What a waste. 
I made Christian friends and we got close to each other and said, we're going to care for each other. If you ever, if something ever happened to you, I'll be there for you and your kids. I'll show up. You're not going to be alone. Are you going to think that's a waste of your energies and your time? To get to know the word more, to be a stronger prayer life with the Lord, to strengthen yourself as a believer, to be prepared for battle? Is that a waste to you? Of course not. This is why it's so foolish for somebody to not be ready. As believers, we've been fat and happy for way too long in the West, and I really think it's time for us to get lean. It's time for us to start thinking about the potential of persecution. Prepare ourselves. Fight the battles now. Prepare for the future. All along, holding fast to this assurance. We're not of those who shrink back. We're not of those who don't prepare. We're not of those who think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We're of those who have faith. And we preserve our souls. This is my hope. That as we step into this next year, as we're preparing personal life schedules, church plans and schedules, that we would leverage all the moments, all the bits of energy that we've been given for kingdom building things. So that if somehow, for some reason, the, 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 the storm of persecution I think is coming were to just skip over us, this generation and the next, if it were just to do that, we would still win. We'd be doing what the Bible commands for us to do. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we can leverage all things in our lives for these purposes. Let's pray. Father, my great hope is that the things of 2020 that have shaken the comforts of people in the West will be used by you for this purpose. Prepare us to endure whatever is coming in the future. Make us stronger in our Christian faith personally. Unite us in bonds tighter with brothers and sisters in the faith. Have a greater, more urgent desire and fearless, uh, fearless courage to share the gospel with people in our lives who don't know the truth. Father, help us to not care about the persecution that might come from the world or even from those who might claim to be Christian out there. Father, let us set our heart and our minds to take this faith seriously, to take your word seriously, to begin seeing all these passages as actually applicable to us, meaningful for me, that we would do what you've commanded for us to do. Father, I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters here to grow so much in this. Lord, uh, staying humble, no pride here, just humbly leaning on you, growing in our faith, not because our faith becomes so good and strong, but because we see that the one in whom our faith is placed is so big and strong. Lord, help us be that kind of church and that kind of people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.